and welcome to another edition of the Village's Daily Sun Sports Podcast. I'm senior writer Drew Shaltry, joined today by specialty editor Jeff Shane. We're going to talk a little bit of golf, of course. Cody Hills is going to join us later as we get into the NHL playoffs, and then we have a special third segment coming up, but we'll get into that later. And Jeff, we talked about Masters all last week. We go back-to-back with another designated event, another great field coming into this week. And, you know, you and I tend to digress into calendar talk, and maybe we'll get into some of that later, but... It, it really feels like golf has kind of sustained this momentum through the early part of the spring here, uh, giving us, again, this was the goal of this whole format was to get the best players on TV as often as possible. And I feel like the RBC Heritage really delivered with not just an exciting finish, but a lot of great names on this leaderboard over the weekend. And we got what we had anticipated with, with these events, the best names coming to the top of the leaderboard. And I I'm a little partial to Harbor Town, having covered a few of those events while I was based in South Carolina. And it is such a great course in terms of being demanding on accuracy. The greens are the smallest on the PGA Tour. And so I think with that, you do tend to get most of the big names coming to the top. And the unfortunate thing is the calendar always said after the Masters and a lot of guys said, well, I'd like to take a break after the Masters. And I think a lot of guys probably still would want to take a break after the Masters. Jordan Spieth talked about fatigue. Rory McIlroy didn't talk about fatigue. He talked with his with his airplane ticket back home. But uh, those that came, uh, we got great reward from a U.S. Open champion in Matthew Fitzpatrick with Jordan Spieth, Patrick Cantlay, Xander Schauffele. It was fun uh, to watch that top of the leaderboard on the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And we even got extra golf out of it. Spieth and Fitzpatrick end up going to a playoff. Spieth had a chance to win it on the first playoff hole. His putt lipped out uh, and ended up pushing it all the way to three playoff holes. And Matt Fitzpatrick ends up winning it out. And uh, just a, a really, really steady golfer. Something we saw at that U.S. Open last year is just how when things are going right for him, when he's dialed in, it seems like the nerves don't really get to him. And he's just so steady with everything he's doing around the greens and on the greens. And I feel like that's what really won it for him this past Sunday. And that's kind of the way that Fitzpatrick has been. He has been so steady, but to win on the PGA Tour, sometimes you need just that little extra something, a hot stretch of three holes maybe, or a spectacular shot that finally puts you over the top. And actually, that's what we got with Matthew Fitzpatrick on the third playoff hole, a nine iron from 186 yards, uh, perfectly angled to a really, really tough green. I think it's a deceptively tough green, again, having been out there. And uh, to be able to get that to stop and uh, give him a kick-in chance at birdie. Uh, Just a fantastic shot that uh, gives him his second PGA Tour win and a very meaningful one for him because this is almost a home game for him. Right. Yeah, he's got some history at that course. Well, why don't you just go ahead and give us the the history of Matt Fitzpatrick (laughs) in South Carolina real quick before we move on from Uh, that. His family has been vacationing on Hilton Head Island every year since he was six years old. And so uh, over the time as he grew up as a golfer to be able to play Harbor Town, again, it's not a really long golf course. It's an accuracy golf course. He could play it as a youth. I'm sure that he played the Junior Heritage Golf Tournament. I'm sure he played some of those amateur events out in the area. So to be able to come to kind of a second home for him 
and get a win was almost as meaningful as winning the major last year. Yeah, it's interesting. He's from Sheffield, but he has some history at a couple of U.S. courses from his amateur days. We saw the U.S. Open that he won at the Country Club. Where he won his U.S. Amateur. Exactly, where he won the U.S. Amateur. So maybe there is something to just the longer he's over here and the more he gets familiar with some of these courses, he'll kind of figure it out. And that kind of makes sense if you know a little bit about Matt Fitzpatrick's approach to golf where he's very analytical he studies his old rounds if anyone's watched the full swing documentary on Netflix they did an episode with him and he has every book recording every shot that he's taken since he was like 15 years old like he tracks all of those shots he analyzes I mean he's got computer programs with algorithms and stuff like that that he plugs these numbers into and figures out where the weaknesses are in his game what he needs to improve what he's best at and things like that and he kind of maximizes a lot of that and that's something that He kind of has to do because he's one of the smaller guys on the PGA Tour. He's never going to hit 350. He's never going to get into a driving contest with the Rory's and the Rom's of the Tour. And so he's really figured out how to maximize the things that he does excel. And that's kind of the thing we saw where he was sitting there with that nine iron on the third playoff hole and he knew what he could get out of it. And so he takes that incredible approach shot and ends up right there in a winning position. And I think that this past weekend was just kind of a great summary of Matt Fitzpatrick's game. And I also think that it's a huge credit to him to be this young of a golfer with, you know, even like you said, as he's pretty comfortable around this area of the United States, but to be at the top of that leaderboard going into Sunday and have Jordan Spieth chase you down and and Patrick Cantlay and Patrick Cantlay right there in the hunt as well to have that lead and hang on to it and get through a playoff without really, messing up anywhere he didn't really have a lot of mistakes on Sunday uh, and that, and that's a position that can be really tough especially for a lot of young golfers I thought he did a great job just to kind of hold on to that position and maintain his spot at the top and I think too as you talk about Matthew Fitzpatrick's analytics you have to do that on a course like Harbortown again the smallest greens yep. on the PGA Tour so you have to know where to be able to miss because there's going to be a lot of misses on those greens and to be able to take all of that. It's a, it's a tight, narrow golf course. Um, I, I, it's a shot makers golf course. And Matthew Fitzpatrick is a shot maker as is Jordan Spieth who won last year. And by the way, one more money for finishing runner up this year as a designated event than he won last year when it was just a regular PGA tour event. Yeah. I don't think any of the guys are too upset about those increased purses. So that's a, you know, a nice win for Jordan. And I, again, wouldn't wanted to see him win, uh, been, really pulling for him to get back into, you know, that competing with the best in the world status. And he's been in the conversation a couple of times. We saw him come on strong down the stretch of the Masters last week. Obviously a nice push on Sunday this week to get into contention, force that playoff. So hopefully something's coming up for him. And um, just circling back around real quick to the top of that leaderboard and Matt Fitzpatrick and the nerves on Sunday – You know, when Patrick Cantley's in that final group, you have a lot of time to think about what you're doing next. (laughs) Really, you really you really marinate in what's going on when Patrick Cantley is uh, standing over his next shot. And I suppose that's just something that we're going to have to accept until they come up with something like a pitch clock uh, that is enforceable. And that's kind of the biggest thing is you can put guys on the clock And then it's a question of, okay, who is really at fault here? And there are guys that have reputations and you kind of know, but you, you got to be able to have the indisputable evidence, I suppose. And when you come down the stretch on a Sunday, simple as this, whether it is Hilton head, whether it's the masters, whether it's the Mexico open, 
you're playing for a PGA Tour win. If you are young and getting just started on tour, you're playing for a life-changing win. You're playing for a ton of money, and you tend to want to make sure that you have everything right. And uh, again, until you can figure out a way to put a clock on somebody over a hundred acres of, of ground. I just don't know how to go about that. And so a guy like Fitzpatrick or really anybody on tour Brooks Kepka was the one who was kind of making a backhanded complaint about the final round at the masters being so slow. You have to be able to figure out what to do with your time, whether it's walk slower, have a snack, something to be able to kind of keep yourself in your own rhythm while dealing with somebody else's slower rhythm. Yeah, and Brooks is the kind of guy that that sort of thing affects, right? I feel like he's a momentum golfer. You know, when he's going well, he's going quickly. He's walking up to shots, and he's pretty much taking them. He's not spending a lot of time in between strokes, thinking and waiting. And, you know, he spent a lot of time on tee boxes because Patrick Cantlay was uh, in the groups ahead of him on the weekend at Augusta. And so that I think that, you know, maybe that affected him. We've seen him get rattled by some slow ba- play before. Uh, Beth Page, a few years ago, the U.S. Open, uh, he was in that one, and he looked kind of shaky down the stretch. Um, but, you know, that's something that, again, like you said, you've got to deal with. And if you ask Patrick Cantley about it, you know, it's, as fans, it's it's not as fun uh, to, to stand there and, you know, the – watch the TV broadcast cycle through players <laughs> waiting to hit a shot and he's standing there you know twitching over the ball for you know 45 seconds at a time but at the same time you know he'd say the same thing what you let in with is my job is to come out and win tournaments and if what that takes is me thinking about this shot going through a rhythm he's going to do it until they penalize him for it so um, yeah like you said nothing you can really do about it maybe someone will come up with a system for uh, increasing the pace of play because you know with all of the focus right now on making the entertainment product better getting the better fields and things like that I feel like that might be one of the next things to come but that's a, a logistically a difficult thing to figure out I don't know if you remember from a couple years ago this is probably pre-pandemic now that I'm thinking about it but the European tour had something that was actually called the shot clock open and they actually got a bunch of countdown clocks to put on wheels and drag them around with every group playing uh, that would time, I think it was 40 seconds if you were the first in the group, 20 seconds after that. And you could, everybody could very easily see how much time you had left. And uh, I think there were even some instances where maybe the gallery started counting down five, (laughs) four, three. So that is probably a little unnerving to a golfer too. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the place to do it would be the WGC because you could really get the crowd into it. And if the golfers can handle it there, I feel like they can deal with it pretty much anywhere. That's, that's the one I'd like to see. If you get the, the galleries chanting, counting down, I think that that would be a fun atmosphere. Put, put a clock on the WGC. I think that'll be, that'll be a fun <laughs> thing for next year. Um, speaking of things for next year, we've talked a little bit about schedule. Well, you and I have talked a lot about schedule, it feels like. But we're in another stretch again where it feels like the fatigue, the, the – how condensed a lot of these designated events and stuff are is kind of almost setting us up for maybe a letdown down the stretch in terms of how exciting and continuously exciting these golf tournaments have been. And again, having a designated event the week after the Masters, I feel like the schedule needs time to breathe. And I know that these tournaments have 
specific dates that are timed to course conditions and weather and historically have just been on certain weekends and that the designated events are kind of picked by, you know, who are the the longtime sponsors, who are the uh, important tournament directors and things like that. But at the same time, we've had a bunch of them already. We had two in the Florida swing. We had Riviera right before that. Uh, and now we're getting into one the, the week after the Masters. We saw Rory McIlroy already withdraw, and so now he has to either play all of the rest of them. No, he's he's done because he skipped the century at the very beginning of the year. You were allowed one absence, so he's already taking so a penalty in his. He's PIP already bonus. forfeited the three million dollars that was left in his pip money. Yeah, so it, it's it's getting difficult i think for golfers and we're seeing that when it's this dense they don't have as much option about when they do and don't play and i think that's kind of taking away the autonomy from some of these guys and i just think that if we're going to sustain this model it needs to be spread out maybe a little bit more and some of that's going to be if you want your tournament to be important you're going to have to be okay with changing when it's going to be uh but i mean if they're going to keep saying all right we want to we want to honor Tiger, Arnie, and Jack and mm-hmm. have Riviera, the Palmer, and the Memorial all be designated events. That makes sense. Um, but again, Riv and the Arnold Palmer being, what, two weeks apart, three weeks apart? Two weeks two apart. Two weeks apart is tough. And that will change next year. Yes. So, I mean, some of these things are going to move, but it feels like we've already had a really, really dense early part of this schedule. 2023 was kind of an experimental. And yeah, and that's the thing. Is there this is obviously the first year of this. So Right. And and I think with that they they perhaps threw a bone. We've talked about this. Threw a bone to some of these events that follow majors that never get an elite field because people want to take off after the Masters, want to take off after the US Open. So at least for this year, and honestly, I don't really expect this to continue, but for this year Harbor Town, right after the Masters, got to be a designated event. The Travelers, right after the U.S. Open, gets to be a designated event. But I think what we have learned is that some players are actually willing to leave their money on the table to get that rest and recovery post-major. We'll see what happens at the Travelers. But Rory, like I say, Rory McIlroy has left $3 million on the table with his second absence. And we'll see what happens, you know, down with with the Travelers. Uh, also next year, with the revamping of the schedule and, and kind of what works, what doesn't, the designated events were required in 2023. They will not be required in 2024. So if somebody wants to skip out on the $20 million tournament, you can. And it, it won't affect things quite so much. But I really do believe, and we've again, we talk about the calendar a lot. I believe that there will be different events next year because what we have seen right up close and personal, and maybe those guys actually needed to see it, is there is a fatigue factor that rolls in somewhere like right after the Florida swing. And if you're not careful, you're, you're going to get your golfers, but you're going to get some very tired golfers. And Jordan Spieth played this week very well, but he's not entered in the Zurich. He's not going to Mexico. I imagine the next time we'll see him is at the Wells Fargo, which is a designated event, and then he'll play the Texas events close to home. And just even looking at the field for this week's Zurich Classic, we have a fair number of big names that want to play the two-man event. Mm -hmm. Great for them. 
But I'm starting to wonder who's going to show up in Mexico yeah. next week because I think everybody needs a break right now. Yeah, and the Zurich Classic, Mexico, those are fun events. Those are ones that you want to see big names at. I mean, you want to see big names at pretty much every tournament, but you're just not going to get it when the schedule is this demanding of a lot of these players. You think about we had the match play two weeks before the Masters, which is a, an especially tiring event. They get one week off, and then it's Masters, and then it was designated event again. So over the course of a month, these guys have played so much golf already, and especially if they're guys like Jordan Spieth, who's going deep into these contests. I mean, he's played an, a lot, a lot of holes of golf uh, on difficult courses at a high level and with lots of intensity. And I mean, just the mental, the physical demand uh, of doing that is definitely difficult. So um, again, 2023, first year of the whole designated event format. So definitely going to be some some tweaks. I don't know exactly how they should do it. I'd like to see something where maybe they don't decide all of them, but I'd like to see the the golfers vote on like uh, like maybe pick five of the events, like based on the the players' rankings or something like that, that end up being the designated events. And that way they can kind of say, these are the ones that work best with the schedule around the majors. These are the courses that we like. These are the events that we prefer. I think that would be interesting to kind of see which ones they would most like to be designated events, as, as well as just having the PGA Tour decide which ones are going to be their top their top tournaments. Yeah, that, that could be tough, but I could see places like a harbor town maybe get some votes because for those that do play it, it it's one of their favorites even like the valspar very underrated yep. tournament from a tournament standpoint but players love that course but let's be honest this is driven by finances of course. and uh, I, th I think sponsors may have a bigger say and i think it'd be interesting too um, again, I don't expect Hilton Head to remain as a designated event, but their sponsor is RBC, yep. which also sponsors the Canadian Open. Say they're a big partner. And honestly, I think the Canadian Open, as the third oldest Open championship yep. in the world, deserves to be a designated event. So you could please RBC by really putting the designated sticker on their tournament in their backyard now that is the week before the u.s open so that also is a little bit of an interesting play but again they're toying with the schedule to try and maybe move some things around uh create situations where you have breathing room in between designated events or maybe you have a designated event before a major but you don't want to stack three in four weeks and I think that's still a work in progress. We've heard that AT&T, which also sponsors two events, uh, one of which is Pebble Beach. Pebble Beach could get that designation next year, which would actually create some space in the schedule, but it probably means Phoenix will not be a designated event. Yeah, a lot of, lot of interesting things to consider there. And we've talked about it before that the Canadian Open maybe doesn't get the sort of appreciation that it should it really doesn't. from the PGA Tour. And maybe the solution is just to build in a week between it and the U.S. Open. Uh, mind you, a lot of guys will play in the weeks leading up to majors just to you know get themselves into a, into a rhythm, into shape, whatever. Uh, but I'll throw one out. Canada Day is July 1st. 
perfect. Move it to that's, after the U.S. Yeah, Open. It's, and that's in a great spot, too, because that's basically dead even between the U.S. Open and the Open Championship. Yeah. So, I mean, that's uh, that's a great spot for it. Yeah, move it to July 1st, make it Canada Day, whatever that weekend is uh-huh. every year. And, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, absolutely nailed it on that one. That's a great place to wrap up schedule talk, which has already taken up <laughs> nearly half the schedule. Um, we, we are – prone to our own vices here but uh moving on the lpga also played this weekend the latte championship and we had a rookie uh get a win over there only her third start ever but grace kim uh takes the uh, takes the top spot in that tournament jeff uh 22 years old great finish for her uh what does she have to do to pull this one out Uh, she went to a playoff as well she won a three-way playoff with a couple of yous yu lu and yu jin sung and uh was able to get into the playoff with a birdie birdie finish and then coming back to on the 18th hole uh, at, at the latte championship birdied it again for the victory. And uh, she is one, she didn't play college golf, so we don't know necessarily a lot about her, but kind of looking at her background, she has a very decorated amateur career in Australia, a four-time winner of something called the Kari Webb Scholarship, and so has been on the Aussies' radar for years and years and years, and has really... Uh, been able to make an impact right away. She wasn't going to get into some of those early events, you know, like the uh, uh, Tournament of Champions or anything like that. Chose not to play in Asia, start her season in the States. But first win in uh, just, just three starts, we might be seeing a lot of Grace Kim. Yeah, and good rounds from uh, Sung and Lou as well, who uh, really, really did make that a competitive one. Had some some great rounds from them, and it would have been a fun story if any one of them would have won because of the great play. But uh, yeah, definitely Grace Kim getting the better of that one. Uh, you know, makes things interesting again. Someone that we hope to see more of moving forward on the LPGA Tour here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Yu Lu shoots sixty four on Sunday. Has to wait an hour to get into the playoff, but a, a Sunday sixty four is fantastic. And uh, Yu Jin Sung uh, from uh, Korea was the first was trying to become the first sponsor invite to win on the LPGA Tour in ten years. The last one being Lydia Ko. And, of course, we've got more golf coming up this week. The LPGA will be back in action. Jeff, what's coming up with the Chevron Championship? It is their first major of the year. You probably remember it. Well, you probably remember it as the old Dinosaur Craft Nabisco Championship, <laughs> something of that nature. It was the ANA inspiration for a few years. But Chevron took on sponsorship a couple of years ago. And uh, as sponsors tend to do, they had took an option to move it out of the California desert and and move it out of a tough date because playing the week before the Masters probably sounded great at one time or another, but then became kind of logistically impossible, especially so when the Augusta National Women's Amateur was created and put in the week before the Masters. So the LPGA was having some scheduling issues trying to figure out where to put their first major. It was hard to do that in the California desert because they've got Coachella going on and and, uh, other tourist uh, dates that were just tough to move. And so with Chevron coming in, they said, 
honestly, let's move it to Texas in our backyard. And so it is now at the club at Carlton Woods. That's where it will make its debut after more than 50 years in California. And uh, again, a, probably a better date just because it's not leading into the Masters and we get that week of breathing room after the Masters. Yeah, great, great timing for that one. And then we've got the Zurich Classic as well, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, Xander Schauffele and Patrick Cantlay defending champs. And they're in pretty good form right now. Could be in position to repeat maybe. Third and fourth last week at Harbortown. So I think they're definitely the favorites going in. Uh, I think two other pairings to look at perhaps are Max Homa and Colin Morikawa, a couple of guys that know each other very well, uh, not only the California natives, but their former California Golden Bears at the same time uh, coming out uh, with that great California team a few years ago and then Sam Burns who won match play and is a Louisiana native he is pairing with Billy Horschel who is a maven uh, at this type of event uh, doesn't really get enough credit I think and uh, uh, so he's I think he'll make a good partner with, with Sam Burns they were tied for fourth last year in their first appearance as a duo and Matthew Fitzpatrick not done yet He is going to uh, play an extra week so that he can team up with his brother, Alex, who's making his professional debut at the Zurich Classic. That's fun. Alex, who, by the way, was his caddy at the U.S. Open Amateur um, back all the way back in the day (laughs) there at the Country Club. So that'll be fun to watch. Uh, That'll do it for our golf segment this week. Of course, we will have more to talk about next week, recapping those events, looking forward to more of the upcoming very, very busy spring. So we'll take a quick break. When we come back, Cody Hills joins us. We're going to talk a little bit of hockey here on the Daily Sun Sports Podcast. With 24 first-place decorations in the 2019 Florida Press Club Awards, the Village's Daily Sun brings first-class journalism to the nation's fastest-growing community every day. Stay informed with the nation's fastest-growing newspaper. Subscribe to the Daily Sun by calling 352-753-1119. Talking a little bit of hockey today as we are into the NHL playoffs now. Cody Hills is joining me here in studios. We're just going to get a quick rundown of what we're looking at in both the East and Western conferences. And, Cody, we kind of have to start. This might make for a bit of an anticlimactic segment, but I feel like every conversation about the NHL this year has to start and probably end with the Boston Bruins. So just going into the playoffs, obviously what they've done this year is historic, but where do you kind of see them uh, as far as you know, a potential juggernaut, a potential team of destiny, a potential all-time great team heading into these playoffs. Yeah, if there's ever a year where I feel like maybe you can, you don't really need to have a tournament or a playoff system to figure out who the the actual best team in the league is. It's probably this year. Um, this is one of the rare opportunities where if you gave me one team or the field, I'm actually going to take the uh, I'm actually going to take the one team. I'll take the bees. Um, you mentioned an NHL record for for wins, points. They led the Atlantic Division start to finish. That was remarkable because the start of the year, I mean, they had guys out. Mar- Brad Marchand out to start the year. Charlie McAvoy, you know, it seemed like they were going to be in terms of um, start off to a slower start because they weren't going to be at full strength. Instead, they come out guns a blazing, kept it up all the way throughout the year. Um, they do have to break this little bit of a President's Trophy curse that's sort of been in play here. I pulled some numbers. Um, you know, only three since since the, uh, the the current salary cap era. President Trophy winners for so the best record, most points in the league, have advanced to the cup final. And since we switched to the current playoff structure in 2013 and 14, no President's Trophy winner has even made the Stanley Cup final. So for whatever reason, going full throttle like they did uh, all year in terms of in previous years hasn't really 
bode well for teams. But yeah, this Boston team is so tough, Drew. I think the one-two tandem in net they have Yulmark and Swayman, um, and that's so tough uh, to have two goaltenders who you feel extremely comfortable going with. Of course, the offensive is so good. They didn't have Patrice Bergeron last night in Game One and still looked really good and fluid offensively. All four lines rolled. But DeBrusque, Marshan, Pasternak, um, you know, Bertuzzi and Hall. Power play is the one little area for them, a little iffy, kind of up and down this year. They're 11th, but I think it offsets it by the penalty kill. It's one of the best penalty kill units I've ever seen in my time as a hockey fan. And not just because they kill penalties, but they are so aggressive. Um, love pinching you on the boards, getting into passing lanes. Um, Brad Marchand's probably the best shorthanded penalty killing goal scorer of our generation. I mean, he gets into passing lanes and takes off the other way. So, yeah, I think Boston will spoil this segment. I think Boston's going to win the Cup, I, I think, top to bottom. They're just so tough. Um, it's going to be really hard, I think. It's going to be hard for Florida, I think, to even win a game in the series. Um, but just from a standpoint of anyone else having the firepower, I don't think anyone else does. Yeah, if there is a challenger to Boston in the East, and again, that's a, a pretty big if. What, what we've seen from them is nothing short of utter dominance across the board this season. But if there's one team that you think could give them a run, whether it's in a semifinal series, in a championship series, is there a team in the East that you think could potentially eke out a seven-game uh, series victory over them? Yeah. Um, I I think it's Toronto, which I probably, for the hockey aficionados <laughs> out there, are going to laugh at me. And Drew Hardy is. but It's pretty funny to um, think about. I, I mean, listen, I will say this for Toronto. There would be nothing more redeeming after sure. decades of yep. playoff, I don't I don't even know what the right word last is, series embarrassment, win yeah, yep. um, than to upset arguably the greatest team greatest regular season team of all time yeah it's um it's laughable but i i think they are the best and most suited to do it which i guess is a, again another compliment to boston to think that this team is so good toronto but yet we're still kind of laughing at the fact that they could actually be the ones to do it um yeah i haven't had a series win since 04 i think this core group of, of austin matthews mitch marner um you know, john Tavares. now i think they're agitated at how many near misses they've had together um, you know, they added Ryan O'Reilly at the deadline, uh, from the blues, a healthy Ryan O'Reilly makes a huge difference. Um, they get the depth depth scoring. I think what's different for them this year is having a proven goaltender. I think it's different from years past, you know, Ilya, um, Ilya Samsonov coming over from the capitals in the off season. Um, never quite found his way in Washington, even though he was predicted to be the goaltender of the future, um, has stepped in there for Toronto and has become the saving grace for them. And they've needed it um, because Matt Murray came over from Pittsburgh and has been injured, and he's completely out of the question now. So it's Samsonov or bust and net. So he has to stay sharp. He has been throughout the year. I think he's a good bet to, to stay that way. Um, I, I I think they're going to get past Tampa. You know, there are a, dozen, a Baker's dozen points better than Tampa this year. I think Tampa's window is closing rapidly um, to win a championship here um, with this current group of guys they've got. You talk about Stamkos, Kucherov, Heaven. Those guys are just getting older. Um, John Cooper, not he's not quite figured out yet. But um, but yeah, back to the point. I think Toronto is the best bet to do it. Um, I I think they can beat Boston. I truly believe it. Is it going to happen? I would put it at less than 5% should we get that matchup. I think it would take place in a conference semifinal next round, um, You know, assuming Boston gets past Florida and assuming Toronto gets past Tampa Bay. But, yeah, I will go with Toronto just because, like I said, I think the depth scoring, I think there's an agitation there too. I think they're, they're ready to exercise some demons. And how fitting would it be to do it against Boston, like you said? Yeah, it would be one of the one of the craziest things that's ever happened again to snap a playoff losing streak like that against a team of the caliber of Boston. First of all, just to get by 
the Lightning, which even in their you know aging state, the success that they've had over the last I don't know what five or six years, arguably the most successful team in the NHL over that span. Um, you know, getting by them would feel good, but getting past Boston would be a whole other animal. That's a good point too, and I guess maybe I made it sound a little easier. I think Tampa's going to be scrappy, right? I mean, because they've been there, they have the veteran group. You know, I think experience. I don't think experience gets you a cup, but I think experience and the credit you build up with good experience, it's good enough to win you a series. I truly do believe that. I think it's good enough to cash it in for a series. Um, I think there's too much now for Toronto in terms of experience on their own end, um, and plus the talent. I think they're more talented than Tampa. So I'll go with Toronto, and then who knows? It'd be a fun matchup. I think it'd be a spirited matchup. Those barns that you'd see between Boston and and Toronto, you know, every you know every other second third game, those those atmospheres are gonna be absolutely insane. So I hope that we are not robbed of that experience. And, and the Western Conference might be a little bit more competitive. You don't have to deal with a Boston on that side. But what are you looking at in the Western Conference? What are some of the interesting matchups, and who do you like to come out of the West? Well, I, I think the best series is gonna be in Minnesota and Dallas. We got treated to a great two overtime game last night, which huge for Minnesota to win. I mean, I think they're going to lose Matt Dumba to a suspension here, possibly for the rest of the series for a really egregious hit last night on Joe Pavelski for Dallas. And if he's out for an extended period of time, that really hurts Dallas's chances. If Dallas gets the goaltending like they got last night out of Jake Ottinger, I would honestly maybe lean towards Dallas as being my favorite. Um, just because I feel like with the scoring that they have, all four lines that they can roll, the power play is lethal with a pair of power play units. I really like Dallas. Um, I also wanted to go Seattle just for something fun. Um, they aren't quite on the mystique of first-year magic that the Vegas Golden Knights had in 2018. Um, but now in their second year, a 60-plus point improvement um, from their from their inaugural expansion year a year ago. You know, Jared McCann, a 40-goal scorer. You know, Matty Beneers, who made um, great headlines for the U.S. hockey team in the last Winter Olympics, his rookie season. He should win the Calder Trophy. Um, all that said, though, I am going to go back with Old Reliable, and I'm going to go with the Colorado Avalanche to come out of the West. Um Make no mistake about it, though. This is a different Colorado team. You know, uh, Nazim Kadri is gone. Andre Burakovsky is gone. Darcy Kemper, the, the Stanley Cup winning goaltender, is gone. Um, they've had a ton of injuries all year. Gabriel Landeskog is going to be out for the playoffs, which is a huge loss for them. Um, but at the same time, there is still a core group of guys. You know, Miko Rantanen, um, um, uh, of course, Kale McCarr is back. And, you know, he only played 60 games, but he, uh, better than a point-per-game average for him at 65 points uh, in 60 games this year. Um, and that's out of a defenseman, which is just crazy. Um, and I know I gushed about him enough uh, during our Hockey Talk last playoffs. But, and of course, Nathan McKinnon. I mean, he's going to take them as far as he possibly can. You know, I mean, Nathan McKinnon does not get enough credit because he's overshadowed in the West by Connor McDavid, rightfully so. Um, but Nathan McKinnon is honestly the best player that I think a lot of people don't watch enough. So he's going to push them as far as he possibly can. He's going to put that team on his back um, and sort of lead with his leadership and his playmaking ability. Um, he's gotten much better at marking, uh, better opposing forward and center uh, from a defensive standpoint. He's going to take them as far as they can go. I think it's to the Stanley Cup final where I think they meet that team in black and gold that's just so tough, um, and it's only fitting that they end it with raising a cup over their head. Yeah, it'd be an exciting matchup for sure if we got Colorado and Boston in that championship. I feel like that could be a good series even though I think both of us agree that, and probably most people would, that Boston would be the overwhelming favorite. So I think the, the biggest challenge this 
postseason is going to be. Can anyone push Boston to six games? Uh, it really feels like. But, yep. uh, I mean, that's that's why you play the games. We're going to see what happens. Um, of course, though, uh, all of the money and certainly all the smart money is going to be on Boston, I think, for this spring. That's going to do it for our hockey talk. We're going to keep that one a little bit short. We're coming back with a very special segment here to close out the Daily Sun Sports podcast right after this. From high school heroes to softball to the latest on the Village's fairways, the Daily Sun brings you the best in local sports. Stay informed with the nation's fastest-growing newspaper in the nation's fastest-growing community. Subscribe to the Village's Daily Sun by calling 352-753-1119. A very special final segment here on the Daily Sun Sports Podcast. We are saying farewell to Cody Hills, our longtime colleague and longtime reporter here at the Daily Sun. So we wanted to take a couple of minutes just to review his time here, talk to him about some of his favorite experiences covering sports for the Daily Sun. and you know, Heckle co- him yeah. a little bit. <laughs> give, give him a, a kick out the door <laughs> on his way out. Friday will it, be his last day. so we It did to, occur to me he could wind up as a guest I, on this I actually, podcast. That's the first thing I asked him when he told me. That's <laughs> he good put idea. in his notice. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Cody is, is taking a position with the Villages High School and the Buffalo Stampeders. He'll be the head of digital media and marketing over there, essentially a sports information director for the Villages High School. And we're excited to continue working with him in that capacity and seeing what he's able to to bring to VHS and to the Buffalo over there. Um, certainly excited for all of the new ventures with that program coming up. But Cody, you just wanted to, you know, in your last you're, you're waning hours as a journalist. <laughs> Spend some time talking to you about some of the things that you've seen, some of the things that you've done here. Um, just wanted to ask you a couple, of, a couple of favorites maybe. We'll just start with one that I think you, you'll be able to, to sort out pretty quickly because we didn't give you a lot of time to prepare for this. But Intentionally. Yeah. Which, uh, which team over the what's it been, seven years now that you've covered high school sports for the Daily Sun, which was your favorite team to cover? Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, no judgment, right? Like no one's going to get upset. Or... I, I don't, I don't think anyone's going to get too mad at you. With, um, with the caveat that every player, every coach, every every uh, team that we've ever covered was great. But yes, we're just, sure. We're gonna we're gonna get uh, we're gonna we're gonna make it uncomfortable with your new coworkers right off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all those nights were worth it. Um, I, I'll take a cop out and I'll go with a tie. I'm gonna go one from each school that I covered. Um, I'll start with Wildwood since that's where it began. Um, that second basketball team that I covered under Vaughn Moreland. Um, the, the athletic director at the time has since moved on, enjoying retirement, I hope, coach. But um, that was that first year I covered them. They make it to the state final four. Did they make it to the state final maybe? Do you remember? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Memories go yeah. quickly. <laughs> yeah. Whoever, it doesn't matter. Okay. So, yeah, that, that first year covering them, they, they, get, they get all the way down to Lakeland and feeling good about themselves and – you know, first trip down there and however long. Uh, well, since they only had one state title at that point, yeah, like 1950, 1956, I believe. Yeah. yeah, and get down there and it doesn't go their way. It's the classic not meant to be type scenario. They had their worst shooting performance, worst offense performance. Credit to the opponent, whoever it was, Graceville maybe, I'm not sure, up from the panhandle. Um, and then they come back in year two and it was like this sort of this, you could see this determination and this this uh, this motivation and you could see Von Moreland was kind of at the tail end of his career. It turns out it was the end of his career, and whether he knew it or not, he kind of hinted it towards me at the end of the year, but it was kind of going out one last time, and there was personal things involved with him for his father and and doing it for his brother who was there every night and his mom was there every night. Um, and then, of course, the kids themselves. I think a guy's like 
know, Darian Wilson and Chris Wilson, the Wilson brothers, and Shamar Rose, and you know, there's kids like Brian McMullen and and Brian Jackson and Willie Mosby. I mean, guys that I for some reason I don't remember what I had for lunch days ago, but I can remember those kids and how hard they worked and how they were a little old Wildwood for quite a while. Still, even back then, that they weren't they didn't have the pedigree in recent times like they have now. And seeing them get the job done and seeing, you know, them win a state title and come back and do it and Von Moreland retire and go off into the proverbial sunset, um, just the good guy that he was. I think you guys know this. We don't you don't root for teams. You don't root for players. You don't – I think you root for good stories, mm-hmm. right? You're mm-hmm. selfishly yeah. looking for those. And Von Moreland and that team was a good story. Um, and the other one was um, – when I first jumped over to VHS, that first football season, 2018, I jumped in week two. First trip was all the way up to Hamilton County, <laughs> like seven <laughs> miles from the Georgia border. Yep. Um, the Buffalo won 50 to nothing over Hamilton County, and I'll never forget what Coach Petta said to me after the game. I walk up, we didn't even start our interview, and he said, Bubba, he goes, I guess you and me are going to be all right. It's a good start for us together or whatever. And it's been it's been good, but they go undefeated that year, and – Regular season, first time ever. Get to the regional final and lose to Donellan on a really tough play, a two-point conversion. Um, but, yeah, those two kind of stand out just in terms of, you know, how, how good those teams were, how hard those kids worked, the coaches and how much effort. And it's not just the head coaches, Von Moreland, Richard Pettis, it's the assistants all the way down. It's a collaborative team effort when something works well like that. Um, and those two, those two I'd probably say are my favorites. And there's other good ones, but th- those two are right up there. So getting a little bit more specific than that, do you have a favorite athlete that you've covered over the time? Maybe it was the person who was the best interview, the most entertaining to watch on the court. Is there an athlete that's kind of stood out to you among all the others as uh, maybe the person that you were most excited to to see night in, night out? I've never met a classier young woman than Kari Nyblack out of Wildwood. Um, I've never uh, never seen a talented player quite like Trey Mann, of course. Um if you're going to make me pick a favorite, it's probably going to be Mac Harris um, from the Villages, um, you know, quarterback and safety, now playing linebacker at the University of South Florida, which I hope he gets healthy because I'd really like to see him live out this dream to its full extent. Um, but, you know, he also played basketball, and, and I think he ran track for a short period of time there. But you talk about just a good kid, a good leader, someone that you don't mind racking your brain to try and write a better story for or include um it was him not only was a great athlete right a division one football player to be but um just the way that he carried himself the way it was you know it was it was yes sir no sir every single time and and those kids don't afford that to me like right there i'm not afforded what's the word i'm trying to use i'm not uh i'm not like you're not mr hills yeah Yeah. (laughs) i'm not owed that you know i don't feel like but i think maybe that speaks to the culture and it was that way at wildwood too i mean you know good chunk of those kids are yes sir no kids too just like at the villages so um so i mean but but he was always on point i couldn't even if i wanted to i couldn't trip that kid up into saying something that he didn't already want to say um or put the team in a bad position put a coach in a bad position first to say he had a bad game um so from a job standpoint it was probably Mac Harris and um I mean I think you've talked to him I don't know if Jeff ever has but I mean the personality that he had would jump out you know it jumps off the page um when you're writing about I think it it uses through the quotes and that's what you selfishly look for so I I would probably go Mac you talked about three 
athletes that went on to Division One college scholarships, but there's always an athlete or two that toils away, uh, makes a contribution at the least expected time, or, or sometimes just comes from a background that is so unique. Who is that unsung, under-the-radar athlete that first comes to mind for you? Mm. That's a really good question. You're a professional journalist or something. <laughs> um, I will take a little bit of a recency bias while my brain tries to rack up someone a little bit further back, but Ben Kubek of the Villages right now, basketball, um, that's a kid that if, if maybe if I do my job right next year at, at the Villages High School and promote him a little bit better, maybe he gets to go somewhere um, and maybe gets to live out a little bit more of a dream. Um, but in terms of just a guy who – does everything that a coach asks to do um, is respectful. I don't want to give up too much of his personal story because I haven't cleared this with him, but he, he's got a tough story, a tough background. And when you see kids like that come from those situations um, and come back and be able to um, excel at a high level, not only as an athlete, but as a student athlete. And that's so important. Um, and that's something that I maybe when I first started, didn't really all that care about, like when I was choosing who to write about or what to do, but now I sort of have tried to take the complete package of the athlete of the student athlete into mind. Um, but yeah, Ben Kubek is just such a good, he is such a, a good young man and is such a good representation of not only that basketball program, but of the school of the community. You know, I wouldn't have a problem with, I, I wouldn't have a problem with him writing me a recommendation letter at this point. Like he is such a good, good kid and a good head on his shoulders. Um, and just some other things I think about, you know, like, um, uh, like, a like a Willie Mosby. I mentioned him earlier from, from Wildwood, you know, he, he didn't go on and play anywhere. You know, he didn't, I think he started as a three guard for Wildwood when he first started as a freshman, um, grew a little bit, and then all before you know it, he's playing on a state championship winning team as the five, as the center. He's 6'3", you know, and he's facing kids that are 6'9", and 6'10", um, 6'8", and just the heart of an absolute lion. And he had these, don't know if he still does, but had these long dreadlocks, and so he kind of looked like a lion when he was going. They were flailing everywhere. It was looked like a mane. And, boy, just he was absolutely tough and Probably didn't get the recognition he deserved. Probably not from me. Probably not from the fans because he was just gritty. He might have had four, five, six points a night, but he'd have eight, nine rebounds, a couple blocks, and did the hard things the right way. Um, so those are probably two. I guess, I don't know, whatever reason, maybe basketball lends itself more to those kind of gritty guys for whatever reason are sticking out to me more than ever. But, yeah, I'd go with those two. Do you have a, a favorite story that you can remember writing in your time that you've been here? There's been some good ones. Um, probably um one that was not so good. Um, you know, in twenty, what was it, twenty nineteen? Gosh, that's hard to remember. Yeah, twenty nineteen. Um, you know, we lost Joseph Machado, a linebacker here on the football team, and it was the most. I remember getting that call um the the next morning from Richard Pettis, the head coach and athletic director. Um, I can't look at you guys. Or I'm going to cry. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm looking away, but, um, I remember getting a call and hearing his voice and knowing something is wrong and then finding out and then knowing that there had to be a job to do and having this feeling like it was the most selfish thing in the world that I had to reach out to these people who were obviously hurt 
and grieving and these kids and these coaches and then finding a way to get in touch with the family. Um, and remember like having like a, like an attack of conscience. Like, do I really want to do this right now? Do I really want to an attack of conscience? Do I really want to, do I really want to put myself in the position? Do I want to, is this what I want to do? Um, and it was, and it ended up being that way. And it ended up being a story that it's kind of funny. It's the story that I hated doing the most. It was a series of stories we did covering his memorial. And I wrote a column about the brotherhood that this team had because of players like Joe. Um, and then of course the, the, the written, the written out feature obituary, um, after it happened, but it was, it's the one I hated doing the most my entire time here, but it's also the one that I think, um, is going to stick with me the most only because I got to see, the resolve of this family that was absolutely incredible that has turned it around the Machado family and turned it into a memorial scholarship and has done so much for local youth sports and youth athletes. Um, I got strength from people here that supported me. Um, Max Gersh, Michael Johnson, uh, Drew, uh, my editor, Nick Feely at the time, people who were um, involved with the story um, and, and were there with me through it and just, I didn't have to say anything, but just knowing that someone else is kind of feeling that uh, that this sucked, for a lack of a better term, that we're having to do this, someone to share that with. Um, the grace that I received from the Machado family to be able to tell uh, Joseph's story. Um, the, uh, the access I got from the athletes and from the coaches at the school and from community members, Dr. McDaniel, the director of education at the charter school, um, getting that access, it sort of, again, selfishly sort of validated the trust and the source building that you build up as a reporter. But to be able to use that in the hardest moments, um, it was sort of like a relief in a sense that like, okay, I, they understood I had a job to do and that the best thing we can do to help, you know, share this kid's story is to be able to just do it right. Um, so while it's a story that I've ha- I hate the most and I don't ever, I don't like thinking about it or talking about it. It's also the one I'm most proud of because I got to see a complete collaborative effort from not only my side of the editorial side, but from the community, from the school, from his family. Um, that's a story that'll, that'll stick with me for sure. Uh, obviously, you know, we all remember the, the coverage of Joe Machado and the, the stories that you produced during that time were excellent, but uh, just getting us back to, uh, something a little bit lighter for the sure. folks who are driving in their cars right now. <laughs> um, do you remember a uh, a favorite game? Is there um, the the most exciting or or most impactful sporting event that you've covered in your time here? Okay, so production note: we're going to cut that out. But Drew reminded me of one <laughs> that I hadn't thought about. Um, I was going to go right away with a game that on the paper just looks like a crazy game. I'm going to read you the score. So the VHS football that first season I covered them. 2018, September 28th, the Friday night. I remember it had rained, so there was a little delayed start. So already as a reporter in high school, you're on frayed nerves with a delayed start as it is on a Friday night. But the Villages won 64-47 to over Crescent City. But that was a game that the Villages was up, gosh, I don't even remember what it was. They were probably up three scores at halftime. Um, oh, oh, here it is. They were up 29-14 at halftime, so two scores. I think they scored on the first play of the third quarter, first play from scrimmage. So I start writing the story in the press box, getting a head start. And then from that point forward, I think there was touchdowns scored on seven, six or seven consecutive plays from scrimmage. Guys were just gassed. Defenses were out of alignment. There was no leverage whatsoever. Mac Harris has taken off one way. Uh, bless that kid's name for um, – 
uh, Crescent City. I'm, it was I'm not, one of the brothers. Uh, there were two brothers. Was a running Scott, back and a maybe. Yeah, Last yeah, name yeah, Scott. Yeah. Um, maybe it was Nikeem Scott. Yep, that's him. Um, he was taken off one way. Yeah, they have him down for 144 yards. <laughs> Kyron Williams, 139 yards, three touchdowns. Yep. Um, uh, and then the Villagers going back and forth the other way. And, and um, oh, God. just It was a game that was just unbelievable. And I, I wrote and rewrote my story three times. Yeah, I think you texted me. You were like, it's the start of the fourth quarter. And I'm on my fourth right. <laughs> it's so bad. And the story I ended up going with, and for whatever reason, they kept it, the lead. Um, but it was like... Uh, the Villages High School football team was, was – there was two teams of the Villages High School football team or two different versions. The first half played with relentless effort and allowed Crescent City to only have 62 yards of offense and was methodical itself on offense and this and that, whatever it said. And the team that showed up in the second half looked like they played with helmets on backwards. <laughs> like it was just like completely different. Anyways, that one was crazy. And then, yeah, Drew mentioned um, just quickly, there was a four-overtime game in the Battle of the Villages. 2019 it might have been. I think it was 2019. It would have been 2019 against Sefner Christian. Yep, out yeah. of Tampa. And that is still to this day the loudest that the old gym there at VHS has ever been. I feel like my ears were ringing. Um a four-overtime game that was just absolutely tremendous. There were so many other opportunities to end it, and it just wouldn't. Um, I got locked in the gym that night. I was about to say. Yep. <laughs> On top of everything else. Yep, yep. Stayed in the media room a little too late. And the time I came out, everything was dark, and I kind of made a decision. Well, okay, it's December. It was a little bit cool, believe it or not. And um, I go, if I step outside, this is it. The doors are going to lock. There's no way getting back inside. And so I went out to see if the gates were open, and they were not. So I was locked in. And I made a call, thankfully, to Marty, Marty Zero Jr. Uh, I, I've, off, I've told him, if you didn't answer, my second call was the non-emergency dispatch line of the sheriff's office to be let out. So, um, But, yeah, that was crazy, too. I guess those two um, kind of stick with me. And I, I hope... You, I hope on deadline you don't ever have to go through a full overtime. <laughs> no one has to because it's it's terrible. Well, we what, know who will have the keys. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hopefully. Yes. I'll have keys now. <laughs> but, no, uh, I might be sleeping there now, like choosing to. What uh, What also has kind of been lost to time with that story is we were fingertips away from a fifth overtime. That's right. The I can't remember the kid's name, but their best player. He had like. Tw- 30 points in that game he let go a shot from like beyond half court that went in just after the buzzer of that fourth overtime yeah I mean it was a hair's breadth if we had review it might I mean it it would have been it was real close close. because I remember we were sitting at the table thinking did that go in and the referees blew the whistle and walked off but I mean it was close enough that we couldn't believe they didn't give it a pause to to talk (laughs) about it so I mean that was almost one of the most I mean, it was one of the most insane sporting events that I've been to here, but a fifth overtime, I feel like, is kind of unheard of in high school basketball. So that was certainly a fun one. I got to ask, was that the only time you've ever been locked in on campus? <laughs> yeah, uh, I've been locked in gates before. Yeah. Um, been locked in gates before, especially since they upgraded the security a few years ago, which 100% on board with. But yes, there's been times where... I'll ring Coach Pettis, hey, can you come let me out real yep. quick? And he's been great about it. He's fine about it. And, you know, through the years, too, you know, I don't – I the front office ladies at VHS, I'd be remiss not to shout them out because so many times I've had to go in there to be let in. You know, you're talking going during football season two times a week at least um, and then putting up with me and signing me in every single time. Um, but yes, that staying in that night was the, the real, real locked in. There's no one here. Custodian staff was custodial staff was gone. It was like a real oblique moment for sure.
And I was going to also ask, Tales from the Road, I'm not saying you've been locked in on the road, but you've probably had to file from some strange places or had the Wi-Fi shut off at just the wrong time. <laughs> Most adventurous road trip? Actually, well, uh, yeah, there was going up to, was it Bell High School up in the, the nether regions of 1A boys basketball, a regional final up that way. Um, the McDonald's there had just recently had some sort of altercation with police involved. So I couldn't get in to use the Wi-Fi at the time. And so <laughs> there was nothing else around. Um, I drove, uh, back quickly as I possibly could safely as I could, um, to, I think the next town down, which might've been Trenton or someplace else and found a place to, to write from. Um, I've also not, I, I've been courteous, but I have had, minor run-ins with school resource officers wanting me to get out of their parking lot when I'm trying to write my story. <laughs> um, I've had a couple of those where I've just had to politely explain myself. Um, made a good friend with a, a Sumter County Sheriff's deputy who was a South Sumter grad after a South Sumter VHS playoff football game a couple years ago that South Sumter won. I booked it over to the there's a CVS or Walgreens drugstore there not far from the school. He came in and was curious why I was there at 11 o'clock at night. But then once I told him what I was there for, well, we talked about the game and that smoothed things over from him being a South Sumter graduate. So um, thankfully, nothing too hairy. Um, I've had a laptop refuse to turn on. So I wrote a full 500 game, 500 word story from my phone once. That wasn't fun. <laughs> um, but you have to do what you have to do, I guess. Sort of in the same vein, just want to revisit some of the more ridiculous moments of the being you being locked in the school after the four overtimes kind of got me thinking about this. Uh, one came to mind last night. And we were just uh, remembering the the light tower fire at PK Young. Um, you have any any kind of absurd things that have happened? Some of the the wilder things that you've seen out and about in high school sports. Well, there was one on a softball field a couple of weeks just ago. Recently, yeah. couldn't get the sprinkler shut off. Um, couldn't get a, in touch with anyone. Um, I've learned where the sprinkler shutoff is now going forward. So hopefully <laughs> we won't have that issue. Well, you have to learn where it is at the other school. True. That's now. true. Yeah. I'll have to be brought up to speed. Um, but yeah, sprinklers not being able to turn sprinklers coming on, doing their nightly, uh, rinse of the outfield. That was interesting. A couple weeks ago. Um, I recently had a wind delay. Uh, the, the umpire wanted to stop cause the wind was gusting so bad that the dust was coming in the face of the batters. That was interesting. The PK young, that was my first season covering Wildwood football in abysmal 0-10 season. It was the last game of the year. Their margin of defeat, average margin of defeat, was like 31 points. It was rough. And, of course, the beauty in that story is the next year they turn around and have, you know, the first undefeated regular season team. Um, and when I had checked with the FHSAA, you know, they hadn't on any of their records had a team that had a minimum of six game plays, six games played go from a winless to an undefeated season that Wildwood did that following year in 2017. But um, the, the the Osprey nest catching on fire at PK Young and having the fire department out, a 45-minute delay, that was great. Um, let's see. Um, that was your last game on the Wildwood beat. I think it, it might have <laughs> yeah. been, yeah. Because I was with Keith and Tavares it getting been. ready to take it over. Yeah, um, I guess it was. That was the start of – Yeah, it was the start of 2018. Yeah, That was the, the only game of the uh, McGuire era. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, good memory there. Um, yeah, nothing, nothing too crazy that I can think of um, that stands out right now. I mean, the the light tower being the biggest thing um, that seemed like it was just a 
are you kidding me type of moment yeah. like it was already just a just a miserable game to be at and then that happens so yeah i'd probably go with that and then uh just the final question unless jeff has anything else here um you've kind of seen the sort of the advent of two sports programs around here seeing wildwood come up starting with those basketball programs and become really competitive across the board in all of their sports and the villages as well this era of vhs football where they've had three undefeated seasons in a span of five years that you've covered them and the basketball team is making two trips to lakeland their first appearance in the state championship game um, all of the baseball final four baseball team. final four last year. I mean, you, you've really seen the sports programs at the two schools here come into arguably their greatest eras ever. Um, you know, what's, what's it been like? How have you kind of seen them grow over the past seven years and, uh, what's maybe impressed you the most or, uh, really stood out to you about the way that they've grown? The first thing that comes to mind is just like how spoiled I was because, you know, and I think that's kind of shifted the way that we cover things here too, I think, just the embarrassment of riches we had because I think I feel like whether it was me or whether it was Nick at the time or um, kind of spoke up and said like we maybe need to shift from a, not that we don't always want to do quality work, maybe we need to switch from a quantity to a quality type method here. Like there's a lot of really good stuff going on and we have to start choosing what we want to devote energy or resources to or, or what we maybe want to get another reporter out on so that we're not missing anything because there was so much good stuff going on at once. Um, it's been crazy. It's really hard to think about and reminisce, and I've tried to avoid it for whatever reason just because I think I'm still going to be in it. So I didn't want to totally cut myself off. But in looking back at the coverage of it, um, it's been remarkable to see Wildwood first, I guess, just grow like they have, um, to see the community buy in like they have. You know, when I first started covering that, you know, there was dozens of fans in the seats at football and bas- you know, basketball had always been pretty well, but football, there was dozens of fans and j- just because they were so beaten down and, and had coaches quit in the middle of the season the year before I jumped on board and they didn't have a full varsity season before that. Um, and to see, you know, McKinley Roll turn that thing around the way he did, and then J.B. Bynum comes in, and then, you know, right after that you're talking about, you know, what Vince Brown Sr. has done. Um, it's been nothing short of, of remarkable for them. Seeing the community buy in, you know, Pete and Kathy Benetti and starting that Wildwood Booster Club is the greatest thing that's ever happened to that athletic program. I truly believe that um, because now it's gone beyond the athletics. It's gone to the arts. It's gone to the band. It's gone to – even the cheer squad. I mean, they are devoted to helping those kids. It's gone to the academics, the debate team, um, you name it. Um, so watching that in itself um, has kind of been the best part for me from the Wildwood uh, realm side of things. For VHS, it's sort of see them, you know, it was always sort of this, for what, and whether it was fair or not, there was always sort of this, there's this thing that hangs over charter schools, right? There's this you know, for lack of a better term, the spoon fed, they get everything handed to them. They get all this. That simply couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, they have nice facilities. Yes, they have good resources. They have good community support, good sponsors. Um, but there was a shift for whatever reason. And maybe it's just because I was privy to it. And maybe I don't have the perspective of way back. But um, it was sort of all at once, like this elevation of everyone from top to bottom. And whether it started with Richard Pettis or the athletic director's office or not, Um, But it was like every single program needs to get going here. Like every single program, we need to be the best of the best, as best as we can be. We need to do it right, right? You need to win. You need to to graduate the kids and you need to do it right. You got to do it the right way. You don't bend rules. You don't do things 
um, that you're not supposed to do. seems like they've focused and centered themselves around those three things even a little bit more than um, even the way I viewed it. And for whatever reason, they've they've earned every single thing. Um, to me, that's sort of been what I've enjoyed about them is watching them go through some tough times and go through some lumps, but then watch them put in the hard work. And when and I think individual sports, you know, football revamped their summer program a few years ago, and it's led to success. And they bring on Sherry Beavis and Isaac Charles as two full-time strength and conditioning coaches. They made that investment, and I think we've seen them reap the benefits of that. Um and, and and so I think they've they've made an like this established, entrenched buy-in on wanting their athletics programs to be good, and from the few conversations I've had with Dr. Randy McDaniel, like I said, the director of education there, you know, extracurricular activities and athletics is a huge thing for kids. Um, it's a huge thing. Me being a former athlete, you guys being former athletes, you know that having something like that as a backbone. Um, it's huge to have something to rely on in, in a young kid's life and an adolescent's life. So I think he understands that from an, from an administration standpoint, the school's administration then on, on down, all the way to the athletic director, the coaches. Um, so I would say, yeah, for Wildwood, it's the way the community's bought in. And for v- that, that has just, that's been the most beautiful aspect of it. And for VHS, it's been the way that the athletic department top to bottom has bought in to wanting to do it the right way, wanting to graduate the kids and wanting to win. And I think the obvious follow-up question to that is we've seen at least from afar what's going up on Highway 470 there, the facilities, the 5,000-seat football stadium, the basketball arena that can host big events, the Olympic-sized swimming pool. How much will the new campus help enhance what you've just talked about? I guess it's kind of on me a little bit, right? Like, (laughs) no pressure. Um, Yeah, you know, that's the goal. You know, that's the vision. That's kind of, you know, it's it's very tough to leave here, and I can't talk on this very long or I'll get going again, but this has been such a good place for me professionally to put myself in a position to do what I want to do, which is sports information. It always kind of has been. Um, And so to have the opportunity down there, it, it was not easy to take the leap, even though your dream doesn't come along every so often. But um, I think what made it a little bit more easier to do, though, was the vision that they have put together, um, the vision that the Morse family has put together, that the villages higher-ups have put together, um, that Dr. McDaniel has, that Rob Grant has as the principal, um, the, the vision that they have that I feel like I can help carry out a little bit, and that's that you know, this thing can become, I think, the premier sports program, uh, preps program in the entire state. Um, you know, you start picking off the top ones. You, you look at a Montverde Academy. You look at an IMG Academy, uh, a Bowl School, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, you know, you start looking at those types of programs that are top to bottom, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, swimming, golf, it doesn't matter. Um, those teams compete, and we're starting to see that a little bit. Um, I think Drew and I were talking about you know, last week or whenever it was, I, I'm pretty sure every single sport um, and every single team has had a district title in the last three years here at the Villages. So um, you're starting to see that elevation. And so I think you start adding in the facilities that you mentioned that are state-of-the-art. And, yeah, some of it is look good, feel good, play good, I think. You have a video board back there. You have, you know, on a baseball field, you have a ginormous, absolutely just, uh, I think some colleges would blush at, Um in terms of a video board for football, you have all that. We're going to have premium seating options, you, you, all sorts of really nice things for folks to come and enjoy. But at the same time, 
I think the end-all be-all for the vision is for the student-athletes um, and to promote the community and to promote the school and all the good things that happen there. Um, at the end of the day, it's about the kids. I think Richard Pettis will tell you that. I think um, just about everyone over there will. I think I'm on board with that. Um, I think what we're going to be able to do um, in terms of just making them better, um, giving them more opportunities to promote themselves, to promote their athleticism, to promote their own dreams and goals and aspirations. You know, if, if we do one extra thing, if we do one extra social media post that we're not doing before, if I can create one video package for an athlete and that kid gets one extra offer that he didn't have before, like that's a day, I think it's a job well done. It's a day's work that I'd be proud of. So yeah, I, I think getting all that stuff on board down there, I think it's only going to help it continue. You know, eventually that stuff's contagious, I feel like. Good athletes, good teams, success. I've always said in sports, jewelry is contagious. You see a ring, other players are going to want a ring. Um, you know, they're going to start getting players. You know, I think from elsewhere, people are going to want to come to the villages. Um, I think it's going to be great for the community. It's going to be great to sell homes. It's going to be great to have businesses um, thrive here as well with this school going up down there. But, um, all in all, I think it's a win-win situation. And I think too, it's a, it's a win-win situation for the surrounding communities as well. You know, I've kind of been a champion of that. I, I feel like I have been throughout my time here is that, um, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that we see Wildwood on the rise as well at the same time the Villages has. I don't think it's a coincidence that South Sumter's always been good, but now they're more competitive in more sports beyond just the primary sports. Um, you know, I, I think success breeds success, especially from a regional aspect. And I'm really excited to hopefully help contribute to that. All right. Well, that will conclude our conversation and conclude Cody Hill's time as a regular on the Daily Sun Sports podcast. Hopefully we'll find a way to bring you back in here from time to time and have you in for some guest segments. And uh, But certainly we're looking forward, as I said before, to working with you in the future in, in this new position and seeing everything that you're going to be able to do for the Villages High School Athletics and the Buffalo Stampeders as well. Uh, that's going to do it today for the Daily Sun Sports Podcast. We appreciate everyone who is listening to us this week. I want to thank you, our listeners, for for tuning in. If you have a moment, please like us, rate us, review us, whether you're listening on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to Jeff Shane as well. Thank you to Chris Siegel, our executive producer and sports editor. And big special thank you to Cody Hills for taking the time to go through all of this with us. That'll do it for us for this week. Until next time, we'll see you out on the playing fields. 